Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast. It's Sarita Viswasam here. Thanks for joining us for part four of our series on elder abuse. The Office of the Public Advocate is a human rights organisation which promotes the diversity and inclusion of all people. Since its establishment in 1986, the Office of the Public Advocate has promoted the rights, interests and dignity of people with disability specifically intellectual impairment, mental illness, brain injury, neurological difference and dementia living in Victoria. The organisation also plays a key role in relation to handling elder abuse. Today we speak with Dr John Chesterman, Acting Public Advocate of the Office of the Public Advocate, to learn about how the organisation addresses matters of elder abuse. In particular, we will learn about arrangements such as power of attorney documentation and guardianships. To keep up to date with the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast, hit the follow or subscribe button on your podcast player. Hope you enjoy the discussion. Thanks for joining us today on the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast, Dr. Chesterman. It's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, at the moment, you're currently serving as the acting public advocate, is that correct? That's, that's correct, yep. In terms of uh, the role of the Office of the Public Advocate, what uh, is their responsibility? Sure, so the Office of the Public Advocate is a independent statutory office. We have a range of functions. We're the adult guardian of last resort. Um, so we make lifestyle decisions such as where someone might live, who they might see, the medical treatment they might receive when we're appointed to that role by the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. We conduct investigations at the request of the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. We have other statutory functions too in relation to making medical treatment decisions, for instance, for people um, where those people can't make that those decisions themselves, um, this is in relation to adults and in non-urgent situations and where they don't have someone else to make that decision for them. We provide advice and education. Uh, and we also host, unusually for a statutory office, we host four volunteer programs with many hundreds of volunteers, all of which seek to promote and protect the rights of people with disability. Uh, so they're the main roles that, that we have. And what's the makeup of the team at the Office of the Public Advocate and the different, uh, I guess, responsibilities within that? So um, so we have a variety of uh, uh, 
program areas that we've got our advocate guardians who are exercise guardianship functions for adults where we've been appointed to that role. We have an advice and education service. We have our safeguarding inclusion volunteer programs, plus we have some other areas too, like our legal section and uh, corporate services. And the, the people we are working with, um, our focus is on people with disability, particularly people with cognitive disability. So here we're talking about people with intellectual disability, dementia, mental illness, acquired brain injuries and so on. Um, so we work in a range of ways in promoting and protecting the rights of people with cognitive disability. We also assist and advise people about setting up arrangements for them in the event one day, we hope, this doesn't come, but in the event that they aren't able one day to make their own decisions. That's terrific. And as far as the involvement um, of the community with the organisation, how did, how can someone get in touch with you to, to get the ball rolling with uh, these matters? So we have a, a, a website which is heavily utilised, which has a lot of information about what we do and a lot of information about the kind of preventive things people can do to set things up for themselves or for uh, loved ones, family, friends. So information about, for instance, enduring powers of attorney, and we can talk about that in, in, in due course. So the first port of call would be for people who are able to look at our website, to have a look at the website, to explain what we do. We also have an advice service uh, which is uh, which operates during business hours which can provi provide people with, with advice about these matters that I'm talking about today. And your role in the organisation? So I'm the acting public advocate. Normally I'm the deputy public advocate, so uh, uh, at the moment I'm the acting public advocate. And what would your responsibilities be? Oh, just the, the, the broad um, coverage of what the office does and oversight of all our program areas and responsibility. So, uh, as I say, the, the, the office is a statutory office, so the public advocate is appointed um, by government and reports to Parliament. Okay. That's great. And so you've highlighted some of the aspects of um, the members of the community who you deal with, uh, persons who might have dementia or other cognitive uh, impairments. So I would say, would you say that it's fair that there is some level of crossover between those particular issues and the topic that we're discussing here today being elder abuse? Yes, certainly. Uh, we, we do quite a bit of work in the elder abuse area. Um, for a long period of time, it was the case that a significant uh, percentage, in fact, a majority until recently of our guardianship clients were aged 65 or older. So firstly, they're in that cohort of people. Um, we do quite a bit of work in relation to elder abuse. So Sometimes we're appointed as adult guardian in a situation where elder abuse is occurring. So... Uh, a, an older person may be being abused by an adult child of theirs or by someone else with whom they have a, a trusting relationship, which is the definition of elder abuse. Um, some of our investigations that we conduct at the request of VCAT, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, involve potential elder abuse, including financial abuse, which can lead to the appointment of a administrator, someone who manages a person's finances. Uh, we also advise on steps people can take to avoid becoming subject to elder abuse, for instance, completing an enduring power of attorney by which you appoint someone you trust to make decisions, often financial decisions, it can be other decisions for you, as I say, in the event that you lose the capacity to make those decisions for yourself. So that can be a preventive step in that it stops someone else uh, making those decisions for you. Mm. 
yeah that that's um good to good to know it, it, it is with these uh, documentation um is it fair to say that they can have a considerable influence on um the ability for these uh, individuals to make their own uh, decisions indeed that's what uh, we say to people we we encourage all adults, in fact, to consider completing an enduring power of attorney. We say to people you should only complete one if the person or people you're appointing under that document um, are people you can trust because enduring powers of attorney can become instruments of abuse as well. So if you appoint the wrong person or someone you can't trust, they can actually utilise that enduring power of attorney to, for instance, um, uh, make financial decisions you don't agree with and, in fact, to... to uh, take funds from you. So we say to people, make sure you trust the people who you're appointing. But if you do have people you can trust and you do appoint them, that is a step you can take to prevent elder abuse. So if we're looking at a member of the community who's looking at drafting a power of attorney document, what would be the main... Uh, you've mentioned... Um, further to what you've just mentioned, what would be the considerations that need to be taken place before going ahead uh, and doing uh, and implementing one? Sure. So, um, so as I was saying, an enduring power of attorney is a document you can create which appoints one or more people to make certain decisions for you in the future. And the word enduring is there because it means it endures beyond any loss of capacity that uh, you suffer in relation to making your own decisions. So, you know, you can only appoint someone under an enduring power of attorney if you've got the capacity to make those decisions, but once you've appointed them, the enduring document endures beyond any loss of decision-making capacity. So the things to keep in mind, there are a number of things to keep in mind um, here. One is, it's kind of an obvious point, but one is to ensure that the person who, who signs enduring power of attorney um, is the one who is, uh, who is keen for it to happen and is the instigator behind it. Because we sometimes hear of people, for instance, adult children, talking about, um, I'm here to complete an enduring power of attorney for mum. Our point is always, well, it's, in that situation, it's mum who's completing the enduring power of attorney, not you. So you need to have, be clear who, who is appointing it. It's not just a matter of getting, in that case, mum's signature on the document. She has to be the one who is keen for this to happen. So that's, that's one thing. We have to make sure the person themselves wants this to happen. Another point to note is, again, it kind of seems, ob seems obvious, but there's no obligation on people to have an enduring power of attorney. So sometimes we do hear about, for instance, residential aged care facilities saying, oh, if you move in here, you have to have an enduring power of attorney. We always say, no, there's no obligation to have one. What we say is we want everyone to think about having one. Thirdly, if you do complete an enduring power of attorney, um, you are, of course, empowering someone to make decisions on your behalf. So a key message here is to think about who you appoint to that role. You need to appoint someone you trust. On that score, as I say, there are different... Um, powers you can give to someone appointed under an enduring power of attorney. You can give them power to make what we call personal decisions, which are decisions, for instance, where you live, what, um, what services you receive, what people you see. They can be those kinds of powers. They're also enduring uh, there's an enduring power of attorney that enables you to appoint someone to make financial decisions for you. In fact, and you can do all of that in Victoria in the one document. You can um, empower someone to make personal decisions and 
or financial decisions, importantly, can appoint, appoint different people to those different realms. So one of the things we say to people is to think about who would be best for the particular power you're giving. So, for instance, if you're um, wanting to think about who you give power to make financial decisions for you, then you want someone who is good with money and who is able to speak to banks and organise your finances. When it comes to appointing someone to um, make decisions, for instance, where you live, then, again, it's important to think about who would you like in that role? Who would you trust to know the kind of living environment that you would like? You're also able to appoint someone to make medical decisions for you. Um, that's another uh, power you can give people through an appointment process. And again, there, thinking about who would you want to make medical decisions, well, you want someone who you can imagine standing in a busy hospital talking to a doctor and and getting a range of information about any situation, any clinical situation you might be in and being able to make a decision. So it's important to think about uh, appointing the right person to the right role. The, the last thing I'd say, um, it's important to remember that even when you have an enduring power of attorney in place, the person can still make their own decisions while they have the capacity to do that. So if I were to appoint you, for instance, to make my financial decisions, but I'm still capable of making those decisions, then uh, I'm still able to make those decisions. Uh, the person you appoint uh, can't just say, well, I've got the document now, you have no longer the ability to make decisions. So in terms of that being a point of contention in a, a dispute for um, any particular matter, is that a situation that arises? So where there are disputes about powers of attorney, depending yeah. on who's appointed? Yeah, so, sure. say, say like the, 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 the mum or dad, uh, they, they're capable of making the decision, but then the daughter or son's like, well, you know, there's a disagreement there. Yes, occasionally that happens. And sometimes where it's most difficult is where there's some degree of, you know, uncertainty about, in that case, the parents' ability to make their own decisions. One person might say they can, one person might say they can't. So there can be contention there. It's important to remember here the umpire in all of this is VCAT when it comes to it. So the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal, anyone can take a matter to VCAT asking for VCAT's ruling on the uh, effect of the enduring power of attorney. Okay. And with power of attorney, it's great how you've highlighted the um, how you can make a power of attorney for different reasons, be it medical or, or financial, etc. These are all elements of um, where elder abuse uh, comes into play. How can you, um, say, correlate the, uh, the relationship of a power of attorney with um, instances of elder abuse? Sure. So yeah, as I was suggesting earlier, um, Elder abuse can happen in a variety of ways. There can be financial elder abuse. There can be physical, psychological, and so on. Um, in terms of enduring powers of attorney, they're most relevant in relation to elder abuse uh, when we think about financial abuse. So an enduring power of attorney can be, as I say, an instrument of elder abuse because someone appointed uh, under an enduring power of attorney can then wrongly take the document, go to a bank and, and try and clean up someone's finances. So that, in the instance where they're doing that for, for instance, for a, a parent, would constitute elder abuse. That's a form of elder abuse. But enduring powers can be a protection against elder abuse as well because you might, by appointing someone to be your attorney for financial matters, you are then enabling them to make decisions and stopping someone else from saying, for instance, oh, mum wants me to go and do her banking. Uh, 
to which the attorney can say, well, no, she's appointed me to that role. It's not for you to exercise that role. It can be a way of preventing elder abuse. So would you suggest that in um, safeguarding the um, elder abuse taking place, you could, say, categorise the different uh, powers of attorney for that individual just so you don't have someone who's got who can really take advantage of the whole situation? Sure. Another option that you can use there is to uh, appoint multiple attorneys. So you can appoint more than one, two, three, four, and you can require them to act uh, jointly, which means all together they have to agree. You can empower them to act severally, which means any one of them can act. You can even empower them to act by majority. So you could say, you know, appoint three attorneys. Say you've got three children, adult children. You appoint them all to be your attorney for financial decisions, but you say, um, but but they'll have to have to have at least two of them agree before a decision is made. So there are a variety of ways in which you can ensure that it's more than one person who has eyes over what's happening in your situation. You can also appoint alternate attorneys too. So if someone um, is unable to act or unwilling to act, you've got someone next on the on the list who can uh, fulfil the role. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that, that's, that's real um, handy. You've got those options. What sort of engagement do you have with the community regarding issues relating to power of, powers of attorney? So, we, well, look, we're one of the main educators about powers of attorney, so we frequently provide information to the public about powers of attorney, and our website is highly utilised, and anyone who is thinking about completing an enduring power of attorney um, ought to have a look at our website. We're the kind of, the, as I say, one of the lead providers of education on that topic, and we also do get involved in situations where there are disputes around enduring powers of attorney. We might conduct an investigation where VCAT is asked for more information about for instance, misuse of an enduring power of attorney, and we can be appointed as guardian uh, in situations where there may have been an enduring power of attorney, but VCAT makes the determination that it no longer is in the interest of the person for that uh, enduring power to be in operation, so they may appoint us to be guardian. So we have a lot of interaction in relation to enduring powers of attorney. Okay. Oh, that, that, that's great. And with, if that was ruled to be the case, what would your role be after that ruling? Well, after the, if, if there were a ruling that we were appointed, for instance, to be a guardian, then someone might have completed an enduring power uh, of attorney where they appoint someone to make personal decisions. If we're appointed as a guardian, we would take over the making of those personal decisions. Likewise, um, a, a, a trustee company, for instance, state trustees or another trustee company or indeed a private individual might be appointed to make financial decisions for someone, which might... VCAT might thereby override an enduring power of attorney that appointed someone else to make financial decisions. Okay. Oh, well, um, that, that's good to know. With uh, decision-making capacity, how is that best defined? Sure. There's now a pretty standard four-part test that exists um, in our in a range of Acts of Parliament, powers of attorney, medical treatment, guardianship, around how we test capacity. It's a four-part test. So basically this says a person has capacity to make a particular decision if they firstly understand information relevant to it, secondly if they can retain relevant information, Thirdly, if they can use or weigh up relevant information in making a decision. And fourthly, communicate in some way um, their decision. So that's their four-part four test. Understand, retain, use, weigh and communicate. 
So that's a, that's a legal test, but it's a legal test on which you might get medical uh, expert opinion. So you might get a, a doctor who um, provides the opinion that the person doesn't have the one, one or more of those features of the uh, requirements around capacity. So are there any potential areas where the decision-making capacity can be challenged? Uh, yes, indeed. It does happen um, reasonably often. Um, one of the ways it happens is like this. So when you create an enduring power of attorney um, for financial or personal decisions, or leave medical decisions out, it's a bit different, but for personal financial decisions, you can either say in your enduring power that I want this to come into operation only if I lose the capacity to make the particular decisions, or you can have it come into operation now and uh, uh, so that you can appoint someone to make decisions now, but you and they can both make decisions on your behalf. Um, where you say, I only want it to come into force when I lose capacity to make my decisions, then, of course, that can raise the question of, has the person lost the capacity to make their decisions? And as I say, in the end, it is VCAT that is the arbitrator as to whether that, that line has been reached. Okay. With, med with medical decisions, when you appoint someone to make your medical decisions for you, that power only comes into force when you don't have the capacity to make your own medical decisions. Mm. All right. Well, it's um, interesting to compare the uh, different situations, I guess, with that, with those differences. Uh, does it make it hard to enforce one set of rules for one type versus the other? Oh, not usually. Um, usually uh, there's some kind of uniformity on whether a person has power to make particular decisions. It, it's technically possible that someone um, would, uh, uh, you know, for instance, not have the power to make a or lose the power to make a complex financial decision, but still have the power to make a decision about medical treatment, you know, an operation that they might need to have. That does happen where you can have different, you know, one capacity to make one decision but not another decision. But, um, but by and large, there isn't that kind of dispute. But there, there, there is dispute about um, whether, uh, in relation particularly to financial decisions, whether someone has lost capacity to make their own financial decisions. Mm, okay. And in terms of uh, your other areas of expertise with the Office of the Public Advocate, uh, guardianship, uh, when would guardianship be undertaken with care of an elder citizen? Sure. So an adult can have a guardian appointed only when VCAT uh, determines that the criteria are satisfied. The two main criteria are um, that a person as a result of a disability doesn't have capacity to make the relevant personal or financial decision and the person is in need of a the guardian or administrator. So, as, as I say, guardians make personal decisions where a person might live, what, access, what services they access, uh, what people they see. An administrator makes financial decisions. So the criteria are as a result of the disability, the person doesn't have capacity to make their own decisions in that area and also that they need a decision maker, a guardian or administrator. It's up to VCAT to work out whether those criteria are met. And in terms of the OPA's role in guardianship as a whole, what's, um, where does it sit with, the, um, with your team? So the, the preference for VCAT is always to appoint as guardian someone that the person knows, but where that's not possible, um, and it can be 
not possible for a range of reasons, we get appointed as the adult guardian of last resort. So we're the backstop guardian if there's nobody else. And as I say, VCAT prefers to appoint someone known to the person, and we prefer that as well. It's better for everyone if someone knows the individual. Um, but sometimes there is no one. Sometimes there are multiple people around the person, but they're in conflict. And sometimes uh, there might only be one person, but they're acting to the detriment of the individual and wouldn't be a good appointment. So in those situations, uh, VCAT can appoint us as the, the last resort adult guardian. And how would you define a guardian? So the role of the guardian? Yeah. Yeah, so the role of the guardian is to make inquiries with the person about the particular decision. So say there's a decision that needs to be made, say a person's in hospital and they're no longer able to go home but they might need to go into some supported accommodation setting. Um, for instance, it might even be residential aged care. The role of the guardian is to meet with the person, they're called a represented person, meet with the person, find out about their wishes and preferences and um, find out what they like to do, the kind of setting they would like to be in, the kind of, you know, who would they like to live nearby, what would they like. And so the guardian takes all of that information uh, and uh, makes a decision in that instance about where the person might live. Oh, wow. That, that, that's quite um, helpful. How would, um, with, if we say the Office of the Public Advocates ruled the guardian for the particular um, member of the person, what would, would there be issues that arise after that with the family and the OPA? Yes, yes. We, we, it, it sometimes can be what you might call a conflict jurisdiction because we might get appointed where there are, for instance, adult children who don't get on with one another and who, and who have very different views about what should happen with mum or dad and we will be appointed uh, sometimes in those situations and so we have to then find a way to... Um, uh, our focus is on the person for whom we've been appointed, but oftentimes that person will want to retain contact with all or most of their children who are adults who, who as I say, might be uh, in conflict with each other. So we have to find a path through there where we can help the person to maintain contact in a way that doesn't lead to them being imperiled or da in, in, in danger. Mm, yeah, well, it, it's uh, interesting because you think that there will be the you got the relationship between you know, the person and their family, and then you've got you guys who sit you know as as a basically and someone who's a trusted person for that uh, individual. But then it's like becomes like a triangle in some respects. It does indeed. That's a good uh, analogy. Yes, yes. So we have to work our way through that. That's that's a core part of our role. And would that entail meetings uh, as a whole? It can, it can do. We we have to find out the best way to, um, you know, maintain uh, access to the person where, where that's what the individual wants and where it's safe to do so, um, in a way that makes their uh, the, the terms in the uh, in the legislation their will and preferences. Um, uh, so they're our prime focus, but in a way that enables others to to see the person as well where that is their wish. Mm. Has there been a rise in uh, guardianship? Uh, from the OPA uh, in recent years? 
There, look, there was a rise over the last, um, certainly in the last 10 years, a trend up. That's kind of peaked a bit and coming down a little bit now. But uh, there was, over the last 10 years, a massive, uh, quite, a, quite a significant rise in, in, in guardianship orders appointing us as guardian. Yeah, it's peaked off a bit now. Yeah, what, what can you attribute that to uh, as far as the main reasons behind that uh, spike and continued rise in Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so a range of things. Um, one, one is people living longer. One is more complex family environments. Um, so, uh, uh, another another factor can be um, busy adult children of of people for whom we're guardian. Um, Elder abuse is a feature there. It's hard to know if elder abuse has become more prominent. It's certainly become more prominent in the media, but whether the incidence of elder abuse is higher, we don't yet kind of know that that's possible. Um, there also are a range of developments uh, in the younger cohorts, particularly in relation to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which leads to more decisions being made and uh, we suspect that leads to more guardianship appointments as a result of more decisions needing to be made. So a range of factors. Mm, okay. Would you say that there are some people who don't want to have the responsibility for their parents um, and they're like, hey, let's use the office of the public advocate? Yeah, it doesn't usually come out like that, but certainly there are people who, who don't want that responsibility and, for instance, wouldn't put their hand up to be a guardian. Uh, more frequently in terms of our appointments, it's uh, it's situations where people are either, as I say before, in conflict with others in the family or uh, are acting to the detriment of the individual involved. Um, so that can be for a range of reasons. Sometimes um, they may not quite realise how much they're imperiling their parent in that situation, but uh, that's a common scenario. And in terms of that, you would have to say that that is a product of, of elder abuse. Uh, in a situation where, where mistreatment is occurring to an older person in a trusting relationship, absolutely, that is elder abuse. And in terms of what you've uh, noticed in, in terms of the guardianship uh, responsibilities that the OPA has taken up as a result of ECAT rulings, have you got any examples there where um, of an elder abuse incident or incidents that have taken place that have led to going to VCAT and therefore going to, to your um, responsibility for guardianship? Yes, we're, we're frequently appointed as guardian in situations where a, a person is being neglected by, uh, for instance, adult children of theirs or one or more of those, or where there are concerns about family members making decisions or even failing to make decisions that jeopardise the well-being of the person. That is a routine kind of situation in which we are appointed as guardian. Um, we also have other roles where we are involved in situations of potential elder abuse. We have, for instance, um, a neighbour might bring up our advice service uh, and raise concerns that they're someone living down their street as an older person and they appear to be being ripped off by the, that person's adult child. That's potentially elder abuse. So uh, we might then, in that situation, make inquiries and that may lead to a, uh, an application to VCAT for the appointment of someone to make financial decisions for that person. Um, 
we occasionally can be contacted by Victoria Police about situations where um, police are concerned that it's not an obvious crime but that a person may not be getting the kind of support from a family member that that family member might think that or might say that they're providing and again that can lead us to take steps to look at ways in which that person might be better supported. Oh, that's great. Well, um, it, it's it's good to know that the OPA is there and uh, a, a valued resource from uh, for not only the community but for members such as Victoria Police who can lend upon you guys for uh, support and um, and your expertise. In terms of the overall um, elder abuse issue and the OPA. It would be great to look at some case studies uh, on how the OPA has worked uh, to a resolution or intervention in relation to instances of elder abuse. Sure. So uh, w one instance would be um, the uh, this matter about which, for instance, Victoria Police might contact us about someone who's isolated in the community. They might have one adult child who has some contact with them but their concerns uh, that there are concerns that that adult child might not be acting in the um, interest of their parent in a situation like that we we might make some quick inquiries about firstly does that person have the capacity to make their own decisions if if they do then we might look at um, uh, identifying support services that might go in and assist the person. Um, that might include a you know, community legal centre. It might include um, uh, other service providers who, who the person could make uh, contact with so to ensure their welfare. Um, in a situation where, like that where the person doesn't have capacity to make their own decisions, we might look at uh, either ourselves or with someone else seeking a VCAT order so that someone can come in and make decisions for the person that might remove uh, an adult child from, from the picture if they're acting to the detriment of that older person. There are other situations where we're asked by VCAT to conduct an investigation um, where there are allegations, for instance, that one family member is financially abusing their parent, so that's that can be a frequent uh, involvement of our office where we will go and make inquiries and come back to VCAT with our thoughts and let VCAT make a ruling about whether, for instance, someone needs to be appointed as an administrator to make those decisions. Um, yeah, they're the kind of... And, and the scenario I gave you before about a, a, a member of the community ringing up with concerns about a neighbour um, can lead us to make inquiries which can result in a range of things happening, anything from Victoria Police being involved to... Um, to a guardianship application to VCAT. Mm. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. I, it's certainly great to uh, know that the OPA is, is there and uh, available to the public. I, I noticed that their OPA offer an advice service. Uh, how does that work in, um, in, in, in particular relating to elder abuse? So, yes, so we provide um, an advice service which can act in the what you might call the reactive space or the preventive space. So the reactive space might be a situation where someone is concerned that elder abuse is occurring and we can provide advice to the person about steps that they might take 
which might include um, seeking a, a, an application to VCAT. It might include linking in services. It might include just some advice about um, steps they could take to support the person. That's the when I say the reactive space. The preventive space might be giving advice about how someone might complete an enduring power of attorney um, themselves to prevent elder abuse from happening in the future. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really uh, handy to uh, have those uh, levels of uh, expertise in these differing circumstances. With the community, what sort of, uh, how, how can we guide the uh, community in terms of who should they contact relating to a particular issue? Given this Seniors Rights Victoria, uh, yourselves, the police, uh, other sources of um, community organisations that, that might be of reference, how do we um, best uh, steer the community uh, for um, support? Sure, sure. Good, good question. And um, so where there's a um, suspicion or pretty clear evidence of a crime occurring, which can include theft, Victoria Police is the go-to there. And uh, as, as you know, Victoria Police currently have a uh, elder abuse, financial elder abuse trial underway, which is, uh, which is great. I'm involved in the steering committee for that. Um, that's a very important initiative. So first up, where there's obvious crime involved, Victoria Police is the go-to. Where you have a situation where a person may not have the capacity to make their own decisions, um, that's an area of our specialty. So uh, I you know, welcome people to contact our advice service in those situations. Uh, there might be other situations where Seniors Rights Victoria might be the go-to organisation that um, can assist, particularly where the person themselves is able to, uh, to often to make their own decisions and where they are the ones who might require some, uh, some assistance um, with talking through a matter. Seniors' rights will be very uh, helpful in those situations where that person has the capacity to make their own decisions. Um, that's, that's probably the right avenue there. Excellent. Thanks for um, providing that clarity in that regard. The OPA also has information sessions. Uh, how how um, it would be great to learn a bit more about them. Sure, we do provide information sessions on a range of topics. Um, we we provide information on the guardianship system, um, system for other what we call substitute decision making. So where someone else makes decisions for you, like medical consent. Um, we provide uh, information sessions on mechanisms people can put in place to prevent elder abuse, specifically often around enduring powers of attorney. We also provide information on supported decision making and sometimes specifically on elder abuse itself. And so for information about that, our website is the best the best spot. That's terrific. Well, um, certainly we'll provide the link to the your website yeah, as part of, um, of this podcast. Uh, sure, no worries. We, we've covered a, a fair degree of information today and we certainly appreciate your time today, Dr Chesterman. Is there any uh, other comments or any other points that um, we might not have covered that you'd like to address uh, with us today? Look, no, the only things to note are we're, we're still a little bit in the dark as to how much elder abuse is occurring in the community, but that will be resolved not too far away. There is a large-scale elder abuse prevalence study underway, um, which will tell us more about the statistics regarding elder abuse, and I suspect that will be surprising to many people. Um, 
but uh, so that's that's one thing underway. Another thing that may happen in the not too distant future, I've been talking a lot about enduring powers of attorney, particularly ones that appoint financial decision makers. There will likely be at some stage in the years ahead a Register, national register of enduring powers of attorney. At the moment, you don't need to register in Victoria an enduring power of attorney, but there's likely to be a national register uh, in one or more years ahead because that's being looked at now by the Commonwealth Government. So that's just something to know as well. Mm, well that's, yeah, that's great, yeah. Yeah, because with the powers of attorney, basically someone just has to produce the document, but it's not like you can go on a database and actually uh, find, find it in place. That's right. In Victoria, that's that's the case. And so uh, that will change with the advent of a, a national register. Excellent. Well, um, thanks so much for joining us today on the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast, Dr. Chesterman. It's been terrific to speak with you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. Great to speak with Dr. Chesterman on elder abuse and the role of the Office of the Public Advocate in this area. To learn more about the Office of the Public Advocate, please visit their website, publicadvocate.vic.gov.au. In our next episode, in what is the final part of our Elder Abuse podcast series, we speak with Cathy Wilson of the Law Institute of Victoria. The episode will look into the legal rights of addressing elder abuse and tie together the aspects discussed over our five-part series. This is the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.